Good morning. This world relies on fear, obligation, and guilt. Let's call it fog. Fear, obligation, and guilt. The world relies on these things to maintain order. As you drove here this morning, you observed the traffic laws, not just because you wanted to, but you, because you were afraid not to. It's really the way the world operates. Fog is also how the religious world tend to, tends to operate. Certainly we find this in the Old Testament. You see a clip of a, an enactment of what it might have been like to be there at Mount Sinai when God gave the commandments.
We don't know that that's how it happened. Here's what we do know. What it says, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. They had reason to fear the old covenant inaugurated on Mount Sinai didn't just have commandments. It had consequences as well, severe consequences. So it says, Deuteronomy, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. To make matters worse, there weren't just commitments, commandments, and consequences. There were lots of commandments, not just ten. As the Jews reckoned, there were 613 of them. And they were difficult to remember, not mentioned to apply. Somebody read, wrote a fictitious letter to Dr. Laura, in which they tried to get some clarification on some of these. Let me read it. And it's, again, it's fictitious, but you get the point. Thank you for doing, dear Dr. Laura, thank you for doing so much to educate people regarding God's law. I have learned a great deal from your show and try to share that knowledge with as many people as I can. I do need some advice from you, however, regarding some elements of God's laws and how to follow them. Leviticus 25.44 states that I may possess slaves, both male and female, provided they are purchased from neighboring nations. A friend of mine claims that this applies to Mexicans, but not Canadians. Can't you clarify? Why can't I own Canadians? I would like to sell my daughter into slavery, as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. In this day and age, what do you think would be a fair price for her? I know that I'm allowed no contact with a woman while she is in her period of menstrual uncleanliness, Leviticus 15.9-24. The problem is, how do I tell? I have tried asking, but most women take offense. <laughs> when I burn a bull on the altar as a sacrifice, I know it creates a pleasing odor for the Lord, Leviticus 1.9. The problem is my neighbors. They claim the odor is not pleasing to them. Should I smite them? <laughs> I have a neighbor who insists on working on the Sabbath, Exodus 35.2, clearly states that he should be put to death. Am I morally obliged to kill him myself, or should I ask the police to do it? <laughs> Leviticus 21.20 states that I may not approach the, state, the altar of God if I have a defect in my sight. I have to admit that I wear reading glasses. Does my vision have to be 20-20, or is there some wiggle room here? 
Most of my male friends get their hair trimmed, including the hair around their temples, even though this is expressly forbidden by Leviticus 19.27. How should they die? I know for Levitic, from Leviticus 11.6-8 that touching the skin of a dead pig makes me unclean. But may I still play football if I wear gloves? The cross represents a dramatic change in divine operating systems. See, God doesn't change in the Bible. He is a God of mercy. And to a Jew, mercy, chesed, means covenant faithfulness. So God is a God of mercy, a God of covenant faithfulness. He's a God who keeps covenants. God doesn't change in the Bible, but the covenant he operates by does. That's a big difference. The old covenant has commitments, commandments, and consequences. This is the way the world works. These are the foundation of fear, obligation, and guilt. This is what it says. Here's a description of the old covenant. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands, we looked at this, I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. I want you to notice something as we're going to flash up the new covenant. Notice how it's different. You're going to notice here that there's if you. It has it several times. Now I want you to look in the next one. I want you to see if there are any ifs. Any if you. Look at, here's what. Here's the new covenant. I want you to listen for the ifs. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Any ifs? Any if you? Know what that means? This is unconditional. If you has been replaced by I will. The cross marks the transition from old to new covenant, from conditional to unconditional divine acceptance. It's why Paul transforms, transforms the cross from an object of horror to an object of wonder. It says in Colossians 2, it's in your worship folder or on your sheet. And when you were dead, Paul writes, in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, dead in trespasses and sins, this is what the cross has to deal with. Somehow it needs to be able to deal with the reality of we who are dead in trespasses and sins. There's only one option 
for a dead person to be raised from the dead spiritually. We need a resurrection, not a reformation. This is the significance of the cross. It says God made us alive together with him. The resurrection of Christ is a visible, visual evidence that God has forgiven our sin and raised us to spiritual life with Christ. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. A record of debt is a listing of covenant violations. It's something that each of us have. Some of our books are wider than others. Some have more entries, but all of us have a record of debt. We have not done all the things God commanded us to do in the Old Covenant. None of us have. And there's a record of debt. Because God promised there would be curses involved on those who didn't do everything. Remember, there were ifs, right? In the Old Covenant. And if we don't do our part, God's going to do his part. What it says here, though, is that God erased and blotted out the entries. It has the sense of having a book and either putting water on it so all the ink runs off, but you just can't read the entries anymore. That's what it indicates. And then God nailed this indictment to the cross, emptied of content. Your indictment. Your book. Nailed to the cross. Pages fluttering. You can't read what's on there. That's what happened at the cross. It says as well, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Angels are charged with administering old covenant law. They enforce commandments, commitments, and consequences. Again, there's no... We could talk about angels. They're, they're decent. They're not Jesus. Angels don't know what it's like to be an embodied spirit being. That's what you and I are. We're embodied spirit beings. Angels are unembodied spirit beings. They don't know what it's like to live in a body. That's why they can't sympathize with us. They have no basis on which to. They just don't know what it's like. Jesus is a different deal, though, isn't he? When he came within a person, he came into a womb, and he became united with the body. And when he was raised from the dead, was he raised as a spirit jumping out of a body, or were the grave clothes empty? He was raised bodily. Once Jesus entered a body, he never left it. You know who that's like? Me and you. Now, we, when we die, are going to leave our bodies, but when Jesus comes a second time, here's what's going to happen. We are going to be united with our body. Doesn't mean, it doesn't matter if your body's cremated, doesn't matter what happens, God's really okay with raising ashes, or he just doesn't have a problem. We were made out of dirt to begin with. So he's going to, our bodies are going to be raised, and our spirits are going to enter our bodies. And then depending on our beliefs, we are going to spend eternity with him or not. Belief in what? What are we supposed to believe? You know what he wants us to believe? That the record of debt has been canceled. That you, being dead in trespasses and sins, were made alive together with him. I know you all have a book, but that 
God cleansed it, and he wants you to believe that. And if we believe that, what happens? We're going to exist in the form Jesus exists in forever, as, as an immortal spirit and an immortal body. As of the cross, we're no longer under the authority of angels. On this side of the cross, we are under the new covenant, under the supervision of the Son of God. So this is the mechanism of forgiveness. It says, God forgave us our sins, and this is how. Old covenant infractions have been erased and nailed to the cross. Old covenant custodians have been removed. God did these things, and when Jesus rose from the dead, what he wants us to understand is it worked. It's true. The cross announces God's decision to give eternal spiritual life to those dead in trespasses and sins. Okay, so what? So what? Kind of good news, but what does it mean for us now? Here's what it means for us now. And he goes on in Colossians to say, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Questions about food and drink are dietary restrictions. And the Jews had a lot of them because they were stipulated in the law. There was a bunch of stuff they weren't supposed to eat. And there were questions about food and drink. Festivals, new moons and Sabbath, was a regular Jewish way of speaking of the main festivals of Jewish religion. Here's what was happening in the time. These individuals who believed in Christ were being told that, okay, that's fine. God loves you, and he'll love you even more if you don't eat this. God loves you. He'll love you even more if you don't eat that. God loves you, but he'll love you even more if you go to church this day, if you attend this holy day, if you do this festival. God loves you, and he'll love you even more. It's not hard to imagine why the early Christians got confused. Again, the only Bible they had was the Old Testament, the first 39 books. That's all they had. And they didn't all have copies. So they went to places where they could find these scrolls, and those were places where Jews and Christians gathered, and we can see how the lines between them would get blurred. And here's what Paul says. These, the things that we saw expressed the commandments. Here's the way Paul talked about them. He said, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. These are a shadow of the things to come. I want you to imagine, I'm Jesus, and there's light here. Let me be Jesus, the light shining here, and if light shining here, it's going to create a shadow there, right? I'm Jesus, this shadow. You know what that shadow is? The Old Covenant. The dietary restrictions. The Holy Day observances. And here's what Paul says. These things are a mere shadow. The reality that belongs to Christ. You know what Paul's point is? And let's say I want you to look at me and my shadow is there. And so all of you are looking at the shadow. But why you look at the shadow when I'm here? We're not supposed to be preoccupied with shadow. That's what Paul's point is. We don't have to be preoccupied with the 613 commandments because that's Jesus' shadow. Jesus has come, and now you know what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to focus on him, but you can't focus on both. 
you can't focus on his face and on his shadow. And what Paul is saying, he doesn't want them to be pulled away to focus on things other than Christ. It says, if, Christ, if with Christ you died to the elementary spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. The elemental spirits of the world, not those are the rudiments of the world. The world's operating system. What's the world's operating system? Rules. You're accepted if you obey them, and you're rejected if you don't. Commitments, commandments, and consequences. Those are the rudiments of the world. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Now again, can we dismiss those horizontally? Give it a try. Tell you what, leave here, zip down this road. You can't go real fast. Zip down this road 60 or 65. Keep on doing it. When you hit Western Avenue, you hit the, you hit the pavement, go 75 or 80. Come on. They're horizontal rules, right? We don't have to mess with those, do we? Can we? Those are irrelevant, right? Yeah, give it a try. Yeah, they're not irrelevant, I'll tell you that. I know that right now. It's, it's, it's especially not relevant if you're going down Western Avenue and it turns into a 35-mile-an-hour zone, but sometimes you don't see it if, if you don't notice things. And, and what will happen sometimes, and I've heard it happen, that you could be going down Western Avenue. You know the place where the sound design hearing aid places on the right-hand side and there's some financial institutions? You know, sometimes you might find yourself heading past that thing going 47. And, you know, that might happen. This is hypothetical. You know, you might find yourself doing that, and then you might see coming from the other side a sheriff, and they're in a car, and what might happen, just hypothetically, is you're heading down this road, and then you see him turn around very quickly. And, and what could happen then is you would pull over to the side of the road, and... <coughs> And you would get a ticket for $140. Um, that, that could happen. That, that, that might happen to, to someone. Um, rules apply horizontally. You know what we're not supposed to do? We're not supposed to apply them vertically. God doesn't operate that way. Not anymore. Why don't we, why, why, why does he say don't submit to these things? Here's what they say. They indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You know what it says relative to obedience? If you focus on rules rather than on Jesus, you're not going to be who you need to be. Fear. I want you to listen to me. Fear, obligation, and guilt will not beget love in you. It will not. The thing that Jesus wants for us is for us to love him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. You cannot fear someone into doing that. You cannot obligate 
somebody into doing that. You cannot guilt somebody into doing that. It just doesn't work. That's what he says. There are no value in restraining the indulgences of vice. It just doesn't work. It doesn't do the things that it needs to do. Um, we're comfortable with lists. That's what I like about this thing. Moses, don't let God talk to us anymore. I love that line. He says, you tell us what he says. I think there's an element of truth there. The God we grew up in, many of us, we might want to be close to him, but we're not really sure. Part of us might want to be close to him. Part of us wants to keep our distance like they did. Just tell us what to do. We like being told what to do at some level. We, sometimes we have a more difficult time thinking of having a personal relationship with God. Just tell me what to do. That's simple. Um, on this side of the cross, God wants a relationship with us. And he tells us that we have been raised with Christ. It says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden when Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You know what? We're supposed to keep our eyes on things above. This is more challenging than it seems. Those Paul is writing to were being persuaded to use commandment keeping. I want you to listen. This is what they were being persuaded to do. They were being persuaded to use commandment keeping to make themselves nearer and dearer to God. What's wrong with that? It's an appeal that's easy to buy into. God loves you. And he'll love you even more if... In that day, the people to whom Paul was writing, if the if was followed by the spiritual disciplines of Judaism, rules governing holy days and dietary restrictions, so they were being told, God loves you and he'll love you even more if you observe this holy day, this dietary thing. That's not what we do. In our time, the spiritual disciplines are different. God loves you and he'll love you even more if... How do you fill in the blank? Give more, read more, do more, obey more. I want you to listen to me. If you come away with anything, this is the statement. You say, Mike, what does this have to do with me? Here it is. When we try to use spiritual disciplines to make ourselves more loved and accepted by God, we are making the same mistake they made. Now, their obedience was things that we don't understand, holy days and dietary restrictions. We understand the principle, though, don't we? Don't we? When you use commandment keeping to try to make yourselves nearer and dearer to God, we are trying to improve what God did at the cross. Okay, here's how we're going to close this, and we're going to do communion shortly. If God made us alive together with Christ... If we died with Christ, and in God's eyes, we've been raised with Christ, okay? if that's so, 
what's true of Christ is true of us. Is that reasonable? Is that reasonable? If we have died with Christ and have been raised with Christ, then what's true of Christ is true of us. Here's my question. How can you improve on that? Is there anything Jesus could do to be closer to the Father? Anything he left out? Anything that he failed to do? If what is true of Jesus is true of you, is there anything you can do to be closer to the Father? If what's true of Jesus is true of you, the answer is no. Mm, is there anything Jesus could do to be, to be more firmly secured a place with God in heaven? Anything he could do to more firmly secure a place in heaven? Um, if what is true of Jesus is true of you? Is there anything you can do to secure more firmly a place in heaven? Anything you can do? The answer is, if what's true of Jesus is true of you, the answer is no. Okay, one more. Is there anything Jesus could have done that would cause him to be more loved by the Father? Anything. Anything he didn't do that a father wouldn't love his son to do? If what's true of Jesus is true of you, is there anything you can do to be more loved by the Father? If what's true of Jesus is true of you, the answer is no. If what was true of Jesus is true of you, how can you improve on that? And why would you try? That's what Paul is, that's the point Paul is trying to make. To attempt to improve on the cross moves your security from what Christ did for you to what you do for him. You know what's going to happen? To the degree your relationship with God generates fear, obligation, and guilt. And we all get stuck in it, okay? We all get stuck, but we learn. To the degree fear, obligation, and guilt drive your relationship with God, you are relying on what you are doing for Him rather than what he has done for you, and that's what we're supposed to do. Transfer our trust from what God has done for us, from what we do for God, to what God has done for us. You know what communion is? Communion celebrates that what is true of Jesus is true of us. We take his body and blood inside, represented by the bread and the juice. And if what's true of Jesus is true of us, You're loved by the Father. You have a secure place in Him. And there's nothing you can do to be closer. And here's the thing. 
how would it change your relationship with him if you believed it? How would it change your relationship with you if you believed it? Let me tell you the answer. You would feel less fear, less obligation, less guilt, and you would slowly, gradually begin to be more like Christ. We're going to have some music. Go get the elements in the back and in the front here. I want you to think about the fact that what's true of Jesus is true of you because of what Christ did at the cross. Then eat it, and then we'll have a song to close. Sometimes love means dying, unless, of course, you are God. Then that's what the word's always implying. You see, we ask the question, how could God create us, knowing some would be damned but refuse to ask? If God knew he would have to die to save just a few, why did he even bother to create man? That's because that is love's master plan. Love doesn't make wagers, and it doesn't stack the deck. Love doesn't wait for you to show your hand before it places its bet. Because we all have to a tell that reveals our cards aren't enough. So when we go all in, we're always playing the bluff. But God cordially folds and gives us the pots. Love doesn't make it if-then statements, like if you love me, then I'll love you, as if our relationship was an arrangement. Because saying that God first loved us isn't just true, it is an understatement. Saying God first loved us is like saying the pluck of a string preceded that its note. Then in fact, if God had not loved us first, there would be no such thing as music or string or note. God's love is kinetic, as if he was moving, bumped into us, and we began to roll. God's love is creative and forms something that loves him out of nothing, so that that something out of nothing may nothing else extol. I just ask that you help us to remember um, the difference between verticality and horizontalness. Um, help us to remember that there are no rules vertically between us and God, and that we've been liberated this day from that, and that we have been freed to that. Help us to remember that when the fog rolls in, that we should reach for your grace, your love, and your mercy knowing that the fog's always around and will continue to assail us. We are thankful that your grace can and will and does sustain us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.